Welcome to the Jesus Collective Podcast. We're a network that exists to provide relationships and resources to amplify a Jesus-centered movement, and we seek to embody a more hopeful vision of following Jesus in our cultural moment. Join us as we learn from those who are looking to live out a greater Jesus centricity in their areas of leadership and mission. If you're new to Jesus Collective, welcome. Check us out on social media or at JesusCollective.com for ways you can connect to this growing movement. Okay, let's get into today's podcast. Well, hello, hello. Paul Walker, how are you? I'm doing good, Shauna. I feel like we haven't talked in like forever. It's yeah, it feels like it's been ages and ages. And it has been. It's been a it's been a minute. So it's, it's good to see you, my friend. Did you get new glasses? No, I just don't always wear them, but okay. um yeah, I'm I was having just some some tired eyes this morning. So on they go. <laughs> well, here we are, first thing in the morning. Yeah. Our beautiful guest, uh Matthew Bates. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Welcome. Thank you, Shauna. Yeah. And are, the, are those new glasses? Matthew? Um, these are, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah Matt, no. Maybe we should ask Paul if he has on new glasses. Yeah, maybe, maybe <laughs> he's just fishing, <laughs> fishing for a compliment. Oh, those look great, Paul. Your glasses well, are great. I love them. They just we're, frame your face just, so well. We're just all wearing the glasses here. <laughs> mm. Awesome. We have really fun discussions during these podcasts. And so we want to thank you guys for tuning in. And we do have a treat for you guys today. As you've already heard, Matthew Bates is with us, glasses and all. Paul, um, do you want to intro Matthew or can I, think I you intro should. Matthew? I think okay, good. Yeah. I like listening to you, Shauna. So I'm going to pull up a seat. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, this is very official. And and I'm just going to say, um, after the official uh, intro bio, we would love to hear from Matthew a little bit more uh, about himself before we dive into today's conversation. So again, thanks for being here with us today. Matthew, we are really excited to converse and just to talk about what's going on. And I've heard you have a book, <laughs> supposedly, maybe. No, I'm kidding. Yes, you have a book. And we're really excited about that. Matthew Bates is a professor of theology at Quincy University. His main teaching area is the Bible and early Christian literature. Matthew also teaches courses in Western religion, church history, and Christian spirituality. Dr. Bates is an award-winning author, yes. His popular and influential books include The Gospel Precisely, Gospel Allegiance, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and The Birth of the Trinity. Dr. Bates also co-hosts One Script, I'm sorry, On Script, a Bible and theology podcast. He enjoys family life, hiking, baseball, and good conversation. And I do hope today is good conversation. We're we expecting that. Yeah. <laughs> a yes and amen. So Matthew, um, that's a little bit about your professional um, bio, but and on the end there, it says that you enjoy family life, hiking, baseball, et cetera. So tell us a little bit more about you that maybe didn't come through in your professional bio. Yeah, thank you. Well, I wear glasses, as we've already established. Shawna, <laughs> mm -hmm. you're drinking... And they look great. They look so you. good. Matt. You're drinking your coffee. I have my huge vat of it over here. Holy, no, you got to uh, hold that up again. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, awesome. you know, it looks bigger in the camera. Um, okay. It is, okay. it is, it is, it is a tank. Oh, um, I like it. 
Yeah. So I, I live in Quincy, Illinois, a river town. Uh, we enjoy uh, aspects of life here. My kids are super into music. So there's a big jazz scene here and, and they love that. I appreciate it too, but I'm not talented in the way that they are to produce anything. Uh, they they produce beautiful music. So um, that's been a, a fun a fun part of our lives is seeing our children surpass us. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's... I have so uh, ages uh, 17 down to five. Okay. Uh, seven, seven children. So oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a busy life. I know. You're telling me that... No doubt. That, keeps that explains me... the crap of coffee. Yes. And no hair. It explains that too, right? Um, I can so go much. with you there. Yeah. So they they definitely um, are a handful. Um, but I love it. I love family yeah. life. Um, we're from the West Coast originally. My wife and I both. My wife from Portland. Uh, myself from Northern California, but kind of way up in the sticks in the mountains. Uh, so we do like... Uh, when we get a chance to head back west and visit family. And we're actually anticipating uh, a family uh, trip coming up this summer. So we're excited about um, getting a chance to head out and visit uh, both sides of the family. We'll be doing a little bit of Oregon and Montana, which will be phenomenal. So, Mm. yep, that's a little bit about me. That's so good. Yeah. Well, I want to get into this. And I want to say just to start, for our listeners who are not familiar with some of your previous writings on the gospel, could you just briefly sketch out your case for what is the gospel? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I think there's been some problems in terms of church articulations of the gospel, not that the church has gotten the gospel entirely wrong or that we've been lacking the gospel until this blessed moment when I wrote my book or something along those lines. I mean. But, but I, I think that I think that the reality is, is sometimes the church has struggled to articulate the gospel correctly. Um, and sometimes it's easiest to learn what something is by kind of comparing it to what it's not. And a very common approach to the gospel has been what's called the Romans Road approach to the gospel, mm-hmm. um, where it begins by saying that, you know, God is holy or righteous, that humans are Centers, and so they've mm-hmm. in some way um, fallen short of God's standard. Uh, and so in light of that, humans need to repent and confess their sins and so that they, they can come back into a right relationship with God. And then there are various proof texts from Romans that would outline those things. And of course, those things are all true. <laughs> like, I don't want to say that those right. things are true. The, the, the deeper issue is that's actually not what the Bible describes as the gospel. So um, whenever we look at the Bible's own presentation of the gospel and, and when the Bible is giving deliberate gospel content, um, we would want to say the gospel is both content and event. On the one hand, it's like a proclaimed message, but that message releases power, something powerful into the world. Um, and this message is actually a message about a king. Um, and so I have like kind of a, a king first framework for thinking about the gospel. And if we were to look at um, some specific passages, this would include 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, Romans 1, you know, 2 through 4, uh, passages in Acts, uh, passages in the Gospels. If we put that all together, we would see it's a narrative, really, and that the Gospel is actually a story uh, that begins with um, the Father sending the Son, and the Father sends the Son with a specific mission to take on human flesh. That's actually really important to the Gospel in ways that have been underappreciated. But then the Son, of course, dies for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He's buried, he's raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he's seen by many witnesses. And after he appears to these witnesses, 
witnesses. Um, that's that's often where people stop the gospel. It would be about like after the resurrection, what else could there be to say? Uh, but actually, I think the next part's really important. Then he's enthroned at the right hand of God, uh, and he begins to reign. And this is why he is the Christ. Um, and then after he begins ruling, he sends forth the Holy Spirit, uh, which is also part of the gospel. And so we have a Father, Son, Holy Spirit structure to the gospel. And then finally, um, the King will come again to rule. So that's uh, the gospel, I think, as Scripture outlines it. So we have a, like a, a large part of the work in these previous books has been to try to create a conversation in the church about how can we help make that narrative our gospel rather than uh, maybe um, other kinds of approaches. Yeah, and that's what I so appreciate about a lot of your work, Matthew. And certainly we've used it here in our context at our church at the meeting place. Uh, we did a series where I just like handed one of your books to our teaching team, and it was just really, really great. And it really helped us to see the larger story. Uh, I'm curious, do you have like, as you sketch out the gospel and uh, being King Jesus gospel and uh, I love that you said, you know, we can't just stop at the resurrection. There's the yeah. enthronement. I I'm curious, do you have any advice for pastors, especially in like low church settings that like mm. we haven't even heard of ascension, <laughs> you know, like how mm. can we recapture that in our worship life? Mm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it obviously begins with teaching. It's, that's quite foundational, but then uh, it should spill over into songs and liturgies and into all those other things. But um, yeah, I think by, I think one of the, the obstacles that people have is the, the constant rhetoric that the cross is all that matters. Mm. And we need to be careful with that rhetoric. Cross is essential, right? Who would ever yeah. deny that the cross is essential? But when we stop the gospel there, we don't really, we, we don't even, can't even really make sense of why the cross is essential, right? If it's just like, well, Jesus died and said it's finished, so therefore the work of salvation is complete. Um, we, we actually don't really see that the next part of the story is actually how the work of salvation gets applied to our lives, right? It doesn't actually end at the cross. It actually ends when the resurrected Jesus presents his own blood in the Holy of Holies, right? In the heavenly, in the heavenly Holy of Holies, of which the earthly version is described in Hebrews as just a shadow and a copy, right? So Hebrews 9 um, would speak about this. Um, quite clearly, so that there is a dimension of Jesus's priestly work that wouldn't even make sense. Like he has to apply the, uh, his blood even to our lives. And that doesn't happen until after his resurrection uh, and after his enthronement at the right hand of God. So um, we need to start by kind of showing people why the work of the cross actually continues into Jesus's high priestly office, right? And, um, and also that that's essential for our salvation as part of Jesus's rule. And that can be a gateway for helping people to realize that it's like the whole sweep of the narrative matters, that we can't just reduce it to the cross. So I think it begins there. But then I think we have to extend that. We have to choose good songs as we're doing our worship, you know, crown him with many crowns, um, those kind of songs that that do more to help people think about um, Jesus as king and uh, the fact that he's now installed at the right hand of God and ruling um, and then, of course, um, we, 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 I think, should be creative and um, feeling free to ex even ex create new liturgies uh, that will celebrate Jesus as King. Maybe new, um, yeah, like an idea I've had that I've actually, uh, one church I just went to is beginning to implement, um, which is to do an annual allegiance ceremony um, mm -hmm. that like once a year, like re-up your allegiance and everyone who's a member of the church is invited to come forward and voluntarily like offer their allegiance to King Jesus again for the year um, and do that in a formal way, like with liturgy. Um, what a beautiful I, thing. Yeah, so. I wonder if that has more resonance 
for our American listeners. That's, you know, like there's, you have this like daily practice of school, as far as I know, is like this Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm a Canadian and I'm just like, I don't, I've never done that. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but that, that's a curious thing. Love it. Over to you, Shauna. Yeah. So I wanted to um, read back to you. I'm sure you know this well. Um, in, in the intro to your book, uh, something Scott McKnight said, he he writes that why, why is urgent because the gospel that many accepted, many believe, many preach and teach, and that many have inscribed into official church statements is deconstructing the church. And I would love if you would just reflect on that for us. Like, what's at stake if the why, if we get the why wrong? Well, um, there's a lot at stake. And I I deal with this, especially in my chapter six of this book, which is really aimed at the nuns and the duns. Um, And, um, you know, it's aimed at at the problems the nuns and the duns are experienced. Now, obviously, the the chapter itself is aimed at those who are trying to help the nuns and the duns, probably more than the nuns and the duns themselves, given that they're more, you know, people are trying to help the nuns and duns are more likely to read it. But um, anyway, all that is to say that I I try to to give some practical advice um, in that chapter um, and in the chapter that follows to on evangelism um, but what's what's deconstructing the church um, I think that it is uh, it is related closely to false versions of the gospel because if I could if I could put it in most concise terms I would say that they're dehumanizing they're dehumanizing and th- the reason I would say that is because they tend to reduce the, the experience of salvation um, down to some sort of mechanistic, um, transaction that mm. pay, that has nothing yep. to do with who you are. It has mm. nothing to do with quality. It has everything to do with quantity or with transaction or with mm-hmm. um, some sort of like, really it reduces things down to like a generic human condition mm-hmm. that like, what does Paul Walker need? What does Shauna need? What does Matt mm-hmm. Bates need? Um, well, we all need the blood of Jesus applied to us and that's all we need for our salvation. Um, and so there's this sort of almost like forgiven label that has to get tacked onto our heads or something along those lines. Um, That's the traditional understanding of the gospel. But whenever we begin to realize that the true gospel is about Jesus as king and that salvation comes through his kingship, not apart from it, but it's actually as he takes leadership and we begin to follow his leadership along a path of discipleship, that it's not just about a transaction, but it's actually about a personal transformation that is going to be unique to Paul, unique to Sean, a unique to Matt mm-hmm. because we all are different people. Um, we all mm-hmm. have different potentials, different problems too. We have different mm-hmm. sin, sin errors, different harms we've caused to ourselves and are causing in the world. Those mm-hmm. you need to be. Those need to be uniquely remedied. Now, um, in in one sense, like of course, Jesus's cross is the remedy for us all. Right, is we need to be liberated from our sin. But in another sense, like we're being saved not just from things but for things. And so that for part, that full restoration, is what. We we yeah. often miss. And um, and that's why there's something unique to each of us that God needs to restore for Paul and for Matt and for Shauna. Yeah. So we we I think that those these faulty versions, I think pe- like a lot of the reason the nuns and duns are not interested in a church is because they sense that this is something that is just um, like a mechanistic dehumanizing thing that yeah. really doesn't resonate with who yeah. they uniquely are. Yeah. Or, or it oh, doesn't tell... That it doesn't tell a good enough story, right? Like I, I love later in the book when like you're, 
you're looking at some of the issues and this really resonated with me is that like so much of how we tell the gospel is not actually speaking to the questions of our culture, like the longing for creation to be restored. There's so Mm. much eco anxiety in like our millennials and Gen Z folks in my church. They're anxious about the earth. And I think like a King Jesus gospel has something to say about that, but a forgiveness kind of myopic soterian gospel it it tends not to do that. It tends to promote a sort of escape plan. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right that whenever we have um, a gospel that suggests that the final end game is just us floating off to heaven and has no concern for the present created order, yeah, that people, they see in creation and in one another. We see in one another, too. We see beauty. We see truth. We see goodness. We see oneness. These are what theologians have traditionally called the transcendentals. I don't really use that language in this book. Um, but nevertheless, these transcendentals Dentals, right, have been um, key touchstones uh, because there's something that everything in all the created order participates in. And so we can see the, these things in creation. And I think that's part of the reason why Paul uh, in Romans 1 has a very positive view of God's revelation that we can know true things about God. Something of his divine attributes are revealed yeah. through creation itself. And I would argue that's through the transcendentals ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. Like once mm-hmm. people see something of the truth and the beauty and the goodness and the oneness of creation, um, they're drawn in, right? And um, this is something that we can use actually as part of our gospeling. Uh, when we're doing it well, we can um, help help people see like that there's a lot of tarnished or damaged beauty out there. Yeah. And we can help through that, we can help them begin to recognize um, that God is calling them to renew these things and to, and to uh, participate in a renewal themselves. Yeah. Hence, like if we're if we're talking about Romans, like Romans eight that creation longs for the sons and daughters of, to be restored. And like I've had people ask me that, like, why is this showing up? I'm like, ah, we have a conversation. So let's move on to the uh, another question I want to ask here, which is like, what are some other answers you have heard to the question, why the gospel? Because you have you have a pretty compelling answer in this book, but you've taken some time. You told a story about working with a group of pastors and you asked them, so why? And like you had this moment of silence. I'm I'm curious if you might share more about your your dialogue and what you've heard out there is the answer to why the gospel. Yeah. The word on the street. Um, when I we love the word on the street. <laughs> yeah, the word on the street, at least in my experience, when we ask the question, why the gospel is that people um, have, I would say two, well, really three main answers that immediately spring to mind. And I think what we would want to say, we'd want to stress that these answers aren't entirely wrong, mm. um, that there is a grain of truth to these answers, but they also don't press into the deepest logic of scripture uh, with the exception of one of them. I think one of them does actually press into the deepest logic. So the three most common I would hear, number one, forgiveness of sins. Like that God like wants, like, you know, through the gospel, like what's the purpose of the gospel? It's so that our sins can be forgiven. I would say, although that's true, that one certainly does not press into the deepest logic of scripture because it doesn't really ask the question, why? Like, why do we need to have our sins forgiven? And I think when people think about that question, they say, well, so that we can get right with God. But for what purpose? Like, why do we need to be right with, again, there's like a, there's a 
long there's a there's a narrative in scripture that answers that question mm-hmm. but people want people tend to um truncate it and want to stop with like they just they, there's a strong sense that we have through a lot of preaching that we've probably heard over the years that really the final end game of salvation is simply that our sins be forgiven um and then i guess that that kind of folds into answer two because when people say well okay then why do we need to have our sins forgiven they often then move to answer two well so that we can go to heaven when we die yeah. right that's um that's going to be answer number two for the why the gospel and certainly um that's not an answer that scripture did scripture is not interested in saying that the reason and why that god gave the gospel is so that you could go to heaven um lots of confusion over that in the church and i think that more and more pastors are aware that that's not actually the answer that scripture gives probably scriptures oh go ahead yeah Probably because of the work of like people like N.T. Wright. Like, I think yeah. he's kind of drilled that into the popular culture that like the vision is of a new creation and yeah. like a new heavens and a new earth. And I think that's exactly right, Matthew. You're right to say that awareness is there. But yeah, yeah go on. I think yeah. so. I think it, I think that hasn't always trickled down to the average person sitting in a chair or a pew at a church. Um, but it is. It's beginning to, I think. But yeah, certainly I think a lot of pastors are aware that um, the Bible never directly says that the purpose of the gospel is to get us into heaven. Um, but yeah, that the final vision is resurrection and new creation. So yeah, so N.T. Wright's work, Richard Middleton, I mean, you could go on and on. Lots and lots of um, yeah, Christian um, authors working on that front to help us. Answer number three, I think, that I hear um, is, I think, one that that does press into the deepest logic of, of Scripture, and that is the love of God. Um, that would be one that I, I frequently hear, too. Well, be, you know, why the gospel? Well, because God loves us, um, and he, he wants to help us in some way. And I think that that one does hit the touchstone. It's actually not the, the most um, often cited reason in Scripture. Scripture gives other reasons why the gospel more frequently. But I think that the reason behind those reasons, I think we could make a very good case is indeed the love of God, right? I think that's uh, that's um, uh, probably a sound statement. Um, and so, yeah, those are some of the wrong answers um, that, that we hear about why the gospel. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Um, I'm just reflecting on uh, all that you've been saying, and you know, I, I am. I I tend to um, re- reflect in real time. So if you see me pausing, that's just that's what's happening. That's what's going on. So um, can you tell us uh, why we need? Oh, I think I'm doing this wrong, Paul. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having some concerns this morning. Okay, can you tell us why we need to stop thinking of Christ? As Jesus's last name, do you have suggestions for how to help our churches recapture the royal term Christ? Yeah, and so I think that we often hear like just the, the language of Christ so often, right? That yeah. it's Christ this, Christ that in the church, and rightly so, right? We're, we want to stay Christ-centered, but um, but the the problem there is that Christ like has just become an alternative way of saying Jesus. So like someone might say Jesus, someone might say Christ. They don't really see any difference between the two, and he might just hear Jesus Christ, and people might even think that that's his last name. Uh, I think uh, upon further reflection, most people know that's not his last name. I mean, if we were to be technical, it would be Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Bar Joseph, right? Would have been maybe something of the way he would have been identified in something like kind of our last name sense. Um, and so I think as people pr- like think about that a little bit more, they, they realize that the term Christ means something different than Jesus, but that's um, not how we tend to use it in our theologies. Like you're reading a theology textbook or you're, you're, you're singing a song at church, a hymn, right? Um, it's in Christ alone, cornerstone, and mm-hmm. so 
on and so forth. Right. Um, the problem is that word means it. That mean the word means Messiah. It means King, yeah. right? So we're, when we're singing that, we're really singing in King alone, cornerstone. Mm-hmm. And I think that when people don't realize that, whenever they are instead are just thinking Jesus, when they're saying in Christ alone, they're just thinking in Jesus alone. There's something deficient there. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, Jesus is the Christ. That's yeah. the truth of the matter. But whenever we 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 stop paying attention to the way words refer and we we just make them empty ciphers there's a danger for the church and the danger that's happened and indeed we see this has happened in the church is that we have lost a lot of the the theological importance of the of the in Christ phrasing in the bible um, as as Paul wants to say, in Christ we have all these blessings in Ephesians or other places. Or he's talking about in the King, and so when we when we forget this, like the, it, it, we can disconnect it from ideas of loyalty to the King or the ideas of the of the gospel itself being about a King, right? And we can make it all about the gospels just all about Jesus, not Jesus as King, right? Which uh, like really the case I'm trying to make is that is that really salvation comes through Jesus in his capacity as king uh, and uh, the other offices that are associated with his messiahship like high priesthood. Okay. And so I'm I'm trying to help um, uh, myself and the church um, do more with kingly categories. I think this is like something I've noticed in a lot of newer New Testament translations is paying attention exactly to this dynamic. Like I've got two New Testament translations right here. One is uh, the Kingdom New Testament. So NT writes and like he this is how he translates Christ uh, in Mark 1 1. He says this is where the good news starts. The good news of Jesus, the Messiah, God's son. So he uses the word Messiah. Mm-hmm. And then I think even more helpfully, uh, David Bentley Hart in his translation says the beginning of the good tidings of Jesus, the anointed. And not even just mm-hmm. translating it as Christ, but mm-hmm. like, capturing that. I loved one of your suggestions here, like to just even add the simple the like Jesus the Christ. And I thought that was so helpful. Good. Yeah, that's what I do most often in my teaching. I I, I vary. I mean, I, do, I talk a lot about King Jesus, but I also talk a lot about Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. And it's, and that's because I don't want people to lose the narrative thread through Israel. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't want, if we just start talking about King Jesus, the danger is that people don't see that, no, this is a special kind of king, right? Mm-hmm. This is a king that only makes sense as the culmination of Israel's story for the sake of the world. And we can't lose that. Like, we, we need to we need multiple tools in our tool bag, but there's a real risk, right? If we just go King Jesus, we would lose that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I appreciate that. And um, I have Scott McKnight's uh, brand new translation. Unfortunately, I don't have it in front of me or I'd show it, um, but I just got his yesterday and and um, I, I've read it, but I don't remember how he consistently handles, um, uh, yeah, the the Christ or Messiah language. I'll have to look back and see. Yeah, uh, send so. him an angry letter if he doesn't do it right. <laughs> well, I, I endorsed it on the back cover, so I, I, gotta, be, I gotta be careful, right? If I'm gonna send uh, Scott an angry letter. Scott's probably the least likely person that I would to get an angry letter from me. So. And uh, if Scott's listening to this, uh, checks in the mail, right? Like, uh, yeah, send yeah. Right for your sure. check for your endorsement. For sure. yeah. um, let me ask you another question. You, you write in the book that God gave the gospel first off, uh, of, or first of all, because we need a king. Uh, so my question is, what does viewing the why of the gospel through the answer of we need a king do much more for us than an answer like we need forgiveness? 
Well, it's because forgiveness only comes through kingship. That would be the, the, the basic answer I give. Like we, there are certain things that we want, but they, they only come actually through Jesus in his capacity as king. And so we can be naive about that or unaware of that because we just want the benefits. Right? We just want like, you know, like the things that we want. And so I think a, one way of framing this would be to say that we just have a very self-centered approach to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. Like that we would be self-centered. What a, really? What a shock. Really? Yeah. yeah. I think it's just, us in America. Matt. I don't. I don't think the Canadians have issue with that. Oh, at all. Okay. of course not. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. Did you? You didn't experience any of that when you were in region, did you? Never. No. Um, <laughs> Just I, I a did, bunch of humble Canadians. Yeah. 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 I, I did learn more about hockey. Drink more tea. Did. <laughs> yeah, did, did did some good things. Um, yeah, but I, I think that just, you know, people as a whole, like the humans as a whole, we tend to have a self-centered view of like, what do I, what can I get out of it, right? Is the question we immediately want to ask with regard to the gospel. And maybe we fail to approach the the problem of salvation, which is about rescue um, from, from a God, kind of a God-oriented standpoint. And so we might imagine like God having a, a problem of salvation. Like we tend to think about salvation as our problem. It's our human predicament. Think about it instead as God's predicament, and we begin to get somewhere, I think. That God created a wonderful creation. It's very good, right? Um, and that God, as part of that, endows his creatures with, with free choice because he wants them to choose to love him and through that to spread his glory everywhere, right? He wants to extend the garden in a sense and and move it to a a new Jerusalem or to a city one day. But through that process of image bearing, like he, he gives humans the, the authority to rule on his behalf so that humans can make God known everywhere. God can make God famous everywhere. And humans, um, of course, we all know that sad story. That doesn't go very well, right? As humans, uh, instead of safeguarding the garden and, and tending it for God, like we instead, you know, go our own path. Um, but yeah. the sin is quite specific, right? That we actually make our own moral choices apart from God's direction. Like we want to, we want to choose what's good and evil for ourselves rather than allowing God to define good and evil. Um, and so uh, we we go our own moral uh, on our own moral path. And so the problem God's trying to solve then is that it, as we do so, we 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 introduce harm into creation. And we harm ourselves. And so the the problem that God's trying to to do is not just to get rid of sin in the sense of a guilt burden or a yeah. debt that we carry. Or and that's legal how we fiction, can, right? Like, yeah. yeah, or a legal yeah. fiction. That's where we can, I think, m- make a mistake. Is that we we tend, especially because of our inherited understandings of certain ideas of atonement, especially yeah. satisfaction theory of atonement, like carrying a debt those kinds of ideas that we can tend to think that like just, well, the removal of that is all that salvation's about, right? He paid the debt for me and that's, that's it. That's the end game of salvation. But whenever we see that the, the problem from a God's eye perspective, we begin to see why that's not right. Like why like sin introduces harm and that God is not just trying to remove the guilt or the debt that we experience. God is actually trying to erase the harm in our lives and in other people's lives so that, so that humans can do, what God wanted them to do. God is not God is not just wanting to save humans for their own sake.
sake. His motive in rescuing humans is not just so that you know Paul Walker doesn't have to go to hell, so that Shauna doesn't have to go to hell. Um, his his motive is actually so that you can function within creation in the way that you were intended, because that's how he designed creation. When creation is not experiencing human rule, creation is not what it should be. It's not what God designed it to be. And either God has to start over and have a whole new creation, or or, or destroy the current one. But we we know within the boundaries of God's love, if there's another way, that's the path God's going to choose. So God chooses to give of himself. Uh, and in so doing, like he, he actually has to reestablish human rule. Salvation requires human rule. And if we don't get that, then we'll never get the logic of the gospel. Like, mm-hmm. like, so God wants humans to be restored so they can rule alongside Jesus. And so that's the, that's the problem God's trying to overcome. If we could put it in a nutshell, God's, God's asking, how can I restore human rule over creation? Because otherwise, creation is never going to function as I intended it. Like, how can I do that so that my glory can go be present everywhere through human image bearing? Um, And so when we begin to see that, we begin to see why salvation is not just salvation from our guilt or from a debt burden, but it is about restoration into something whole so that we can be kings and queens on God's behalf under the banner of King Jesus and in unity with him, uh, ruling and reigning. And that's really the final vision in the Bible is us us doing exactly that. Yeah, I love the language of um, not from, but for, but also just the the reimagining of, of harm and, instead of debt. That's just really great imaging. Um, I have a question about being famous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why does the gospel want to make us famous, but not Kardashian famous? <laughs> um, so, yeah. So anyway, one of the surprising claims maybe I make in um, in chapter two of why the gospel is that the gospel, uh, one of its main purposes in the Bible is actually to make us famous. Um, and this is a deliberately provocative claim, right? Uh, as it's a, you know, we want to we want to be provocative within the bounds of what scripture encourages. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I enjoyed a, it at first. I was like, where is he going with this? And uh, like, you even make fun of yourself in your book. You're like, I'm not being a prosperity teacher. And like, yeah. it's great. Um, so, yeah, but um, it's partly because we misunderstand the word glory and that mm. the, the word glory in um, scripture, both in Hebrew and in Greek, both Hebrew kavod and in the Greek word doxa, um, it, but they both have to do with a weightiness, reputation, fame, honor, like um, all these ideas are bound up with glory. And one of the things that we don't realize often in reading the Bible is that glory is not just praise language. We tend to read it. We tend to read right past it. it it's sort of like, a, like hallelujah, sparkle and glitter, like angels, right. like, yeah. uh, you know, bright light. Um, we tend to have these kind of images of worship connected with glory, mm. but we don't really connect it very well with reputation or honor. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and if this was actually something that was a public moral good in the Roman world. Um, like if, if you were to ask your average Roman citizen, like what is the what is the commodity you most want in the world? Like what would be the greatest thing to collect? Like glory would have been the top choice. Like this was mm. part, this was the main way you made decisions. Is like how what can I do that's going to bring more honor to myself and to my people? That's really what you're up to. And so we have to be careful not to read past that language when we're reading the New Testament. We need to realize that this is something that um, that everyone in Paul's world and in the world of the New Testament where they were deeply invested in wanting glory. Um, and so when the Bible speaks about glory, it's not speaking about um, just 
like our heavenly destiny or something along right. those lines, but we about actually, yeah, our reputation. <laughs> so uh, we have a number of passages in the Bible that speak about the purpose of the gospel as actually to give us glory, not just to give God glory, but to give humans glory, actually, in conjunction with God receiving glory. And, and then it's not a zero, yeah. it's not a zero sum game. It's not mm -hmm. like God gets all the glory and therefore humans should get zero glory. It's actually, as we study scripture with care, that it's actually as humans are glorified, as they are res restored to their appropriate God-given honor, that that's how God is most glorified. So it's actually, um, it's not a zero-sum game. It's instead a, an interconnected idea that humans need to be recover have a recovery of glory. And that's partly how God will be most glorified is through that human recovery of glory. So God wants us to all have a great reputation, but that's only in and through the king. Right as we mm -hmm. um, as we come under his banner, he begins to restore the shameful things in our life, the things that are dishonorable, and mm -hmm. that it's as our reputation then is reestablished in Christ um, that we then um, have an appropriate honor with the King, an honor that will last forever and ever, and it may be never an honor the world recognizes, right? And uh, we need to be careful about that, right? We need it's not like any it's not like we're gonna we should expect a lot of applause for living in in light of Christ. We right. should expect in in fact that we'll be dishonored by the Opposite. world in many ways, yeah. <laughs> but we're gaining honor with the king. And there are some ways in which that honor will spill over and, and that creation will be glorified and that others will recognize it, yeah, whether now or in the future. So it will be a real honor, a real glory that we get, a real fame um, that is connected with King Jesus and with God's people. Just for our curious listeners that are perhaps intrigued by this, can you just throw out a few quick scriptures that kind of like demonstrate this, this dynamic. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, as you're pressing me for details, I gotta, I gotta look back and look at the, uh, at my own scripture references as they're not like right on the tip of my brain here. Um, but yeah, there are a couple passages where I speak about, um, about this. Um, one would be, um, in second Timothy two, eight and following where we actually have a presentation of the gospel. Um, and, uh, Paul has a really short clipped kind of, um, mention of the gospel there. Uh, and so he says, remember, Jesus the Christ, having been raised from amid those who are dead of the seed of David, according to my gospel. That's 2 Timothy 2.8. And then he goes on from there because Paul is actually in chains um, and uh, he knows that he's about to be executed. Uh, and so as part of this, he says, uh, uh, this is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Uh, and yet, despite this, he says, God's word is not changed. And then he goes on from there um, and speaks about um, how uh, that this is all connected to glory, ultimately. Uh, he says then in what follows, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in the Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And so that language with eternal glory, we tend to just read past that. And, and we tend to feel like that's just like uh, somehow or another, like with praise to like God or with, like that we'll be in heaven one day, or I don't know what we do. We often don't even like do anything with that language. We just right. skip on past it, mm -hmm. right? It just sounds kind of churchy. Um, mm -hmm. But like Paul is saying, like with his language of with eternal glory, that we will actually be glorified alongside King Jesus, mm -hmm. right? And there are other passages like that um, mm -hmm. that speak about glory. Probably the most, um, the passage that's probably most central to my book that I return to again and again is 2 Corinthians 4.4, uh, 4, where Paul describes the gospel and he says it's the gospel of the glory of the Christ, the image of God. 
the gospel of the glory of the Christ, the image of God. And in, in that very compressed language, what he's saying is that um, is that the gospel is about a restoration of glory as we're actually restored into the image of Jesus. Jesus' image is God, and that is something that uh, is about full human rule over creation and that we come to be conformed to that image. Um, and in so doing, glory is restored through that process. Mm. Thank you for fleshing that out a bit more, Matt. I think that'll be helpful for our listeners. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us about your famous friend, Doyle. <laughs> yeah. What made him kingdom famous? Yeah. And so Doyle is the least famous person in the history of the world, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, he was a foreman at a mill. Um, and uh, this is in a small logging town in Northern California. Um, uh, he wasn't uh, well-educated. He barely finished high school kind of guy um, and uh, loved to hunt and to fish. And anyway, my dad and Doyle uh, became friends through work initially. And uh, we, we became really close friends with Doyle and his wife, Sandy. Uh, and this would have been in my you know formative growing up years. Uh, anyway, um, we were always over in their backyard doing something every weekend, or they were in ours. Um, but when I was in sixth grade, there uh, was a tragedy at the mill. Uh, mm -hmm. Doyle had actually been transferred to a different town, and an, an in, improperly installed piece of equipment shot a two by four, a splinter from a two by four, right through his spine, and it like actually got stuck in his body. Like he had this this big piece of wood stuck right through the middle of his bowels, and of course he was rushed to the hospital. Um, languished there. Everyone thought he was going to die. But in the hospital, at some point during his recovery, uh, after he got out of ICU and it could actually receive visits, a chaplain came and visited him and uh, Doyle received a message of salvation. I don't know the details of any of that. Um, but as part of that, um, Doyle felt like God had given him a second chance in life, that mm. um, he should have died. And that if he, was, if he had in some way been preserved, it must be for God's purposes. And so he really determined to live his life in a King Jesus first kind of way from there on out. So Doyle wheeled into a church after he was out of the hospital eventually, never walked again. Um, mm. And uh, soon thereafter, you know, he was inviting our family. How could we resist, right? Uh, as this, um, this, this Jesus had just changed Doyle's life and he was radiant. We kind of thought wow. that he would be despondent, right? But he was just right. radiant after yeah. his, his accident, feeling that God had given him this new chance in life. So we just got swept up into that. And, um, and so that that's really my story um, that, you know, wow. I received baptism when I was in seventh grade. Um, and I, I doubt I would be a Christian today apart from Doyle and apart from Grace Community Bible Church, um, where I was nurtured along. Um, and and so as part of that whole story, right, Doyle became gospel famous to me. Um, Absolutely. Lots of memories of Doyle, of, um, you know, hunting and fishing with him. And even after his accident, my dad would pick him up. I mean, like literally pick him up and put him in the boat. Mm. Uh, and so we could go out fishing together. And um, through that, Doyle became gospel famous. Mm. Um, and so he's not famous to the world, right? But this is the kind of glory that I'm speaking about or the gospel yes. fame. Um, yes. As C.S. Lewis reminds us, like who can guess the eternal weight of glory, right? That will attend mm. such people, right? That uh, downstream from Doyle's testimony, who knows how many people have been changed. No so, so Doyle is gospel famous um, to me. Uh, because, I love it. Because of his role in my life. I love it. And just think of the ripple effect, like you said, downstream from that. And I'll take that over Kardashian famous any day Come of the week. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Blessings, so, blessings. So Matt, um, thank you so much for, for sharing about Doyle because that just like, yeah. that moved me to tears as you described yeah. like how your dad cared for him and it became this witness. And it's just like, yeah, that's the kind of 
uh, glory we need at work. Um, speaking of glory, though, I find in some movements they talk a lot about glory. Like I, I was born and raised Pentecostal, mm-hmm. so yeah. like they they may talk <laughs> about like glory clouds or glory hallelujahs. Uh, but for your reading audience, you have introduced this helpful concept called the glory cycle, and mm. this might seem like odd or new information to a lot of our listeners who presume that like. God is, you know, primarily glorious and humans are just wretched and sinful. You know, God has all the glory, but then you sketch this really, I think, helpful cycle of glory. Um, And so I'm curious, can you explain to our listening audience, what is the glory cycle as you are sketching it? You know, don't give too much away. You want them to buy your book. (laughs) But... Uh, and just a the, taste. Just, yeah. a, just taste. a taste. And then uh, just, just a follow-up a question yeah. is like, why is human glory intric- intricately connected to God's glory? Mm. Well, yeah. And explaining the glory cycle will probably answer your question number two for you a little okay. bit. Um, and so, yeah. So like the glory cycle begins with God who is, you know, he's in, uh, in, unimpeachable in terms of his glory. Like we, we can't speak about God losing glory in terms of God's intrinsic qualities or what's essential to his name, right? When God reveals his glory to Moses, right? Um, and we could think about um, the passage in, you know, in, the, in the, the cycle between Exodus 32 and 34, when Moses is placed in the cleft of the rock, right? And he reveals um, something of, God reveals something of what his name means to Moses, right? Proclaiming Yahweh and, and, and showing his glory. Um, and so, so we see that God is, is is gracious and merciful and just as part of all that, right? That he shows covenant faithfulness or covenant love. And none of that can ever be retracted, right? Or, or harmed in any way. Um, but that's only one aspect of glory. Uh, there's another aspect of glory that we might call the subjective aspect of glory that has to do with whether or not people are actually giving God the glory. And that's why, like in the Psalms, we have people, like the psalmist crying out, ascribe to God the glory. Give him the glory that is due his name. And so that's where we realize, okay, this glory business is more complicated than we realize, because on the one hand, it would seem that God has this intrinsic glory that he can never lose. But on the other hand, glory has this subjective aspect that if people aren't glorifying God properly, then God is actually receiving a lack. There is a lack in his glory, right, in that subjective sense. So um, we have to deal with both tensions in the Bible because they're both clearly there, both, both aspects of glory. So we have this objective aspect and this subjective aspect be one way of speaking about it. So anyway, God in his glory, um, he he lends some of that glory to humans. Some of that glory devolves onto humans. And this is simply what it means to be made in God's image, uh, mm. is that this is something that like, as part of that process, um, we receive glory and honor as Psalm 8 speaks of it, uh, as it's reflecting on the creation story, um, that humans receive glory and honor as part of their, their, of their God-given tasks to rule on God's behalf. And so um, as part of the glory cycle then um that's really um where the story is um you know kind of begins but then we have this uh, the fall right where humans then um reject um their role um in yeah. bearing glory on god's behalf and i think i show an image in in, in my picture of the crowns being thrown to the ground mm-hmm. uh, right uh, the glory is represented by a crown the crowns mm-hmm. are getting tossed to the dirt right by mm-hmm. humans um and uh, paul actually speaks yeah. about this as a yeah, glory i knew i knew that was coming <laughs> <Paul was gonna laughs> uh, yeah 
Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the Apostle Paul speaks about this as a glory exchange that mm. uh, that uh, although humans are created with glory, that as we worship idols, that there's a glory exchange, right? And that's why Paul ultimately says when he sums up the human problem that all have sinned and he says something surprising and are lacking the glory of God, right? And we uh, and as we're reading that, we read all have sinned and are lacking the glory of God. We, we, we tend to just think, and we're not fit to go to heaven. Right. Um, seems right. To be what we, we don't have. measure up. Yeah, yeah, we don't measure up in some way. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is actually that we have come to um, be debased in our glory, right? That mm. there's something lacking that we we should be fully bearing the image, but we're not. And that's why creation is suffering too. And that's why in Romans 8, when Paul talks about the revelation of the sons of God, right? Um, that the creation needs the glory, right? That's, the, that's exactly what's going on in Romans 8. Uh, anyway, uh, so all, all of this then um, is about the basic human condition. And that's where we find ourselves. But some have had the opportunity to begin spiraling upward in glory. So on the one hand, the glory cycle is a cosmic story. It's a cosmic process, uh, the story of all humanity and that all humanity as it's in various epics. But on the other hand, like there's an opportunity now for some people to begin to come out of the downward spiral because of the good news, because of the gospel. So step four in the glory cycle would be that God sends the glorious king. He sends Jesus, the king who fully bears the glory of God. And so once that happens, once that key thing happens, the incarnation, we then can begin to see the glory of God. And as we gaze on King Jesus, then that's how our glory is restored through a, the process of transformative viewing. So I have a whole chapter actually that details what transformative viewing would involve, uh, how that actually spiritually transforms us and moves us out of the downward spi spiral. Uh, and so it, it tends to, it's an attempt to marry both theological concerns with practical advice about how we, we, we need to come and see. Uh, we need to approach Jesus and see and what this intentional seeing might involve. But it's through this process of intentional seeing that we come to be conformed to the image of Jesus and that mm. our glory is restored. And so that then we're then fit to rule alongside King Jesus as the final horizon of salvation, as we've actually come to be conformed to his image, as we've fully seen him, uh, then we become like him uh, is what the Bible would teach. So that's really how the glory cycle um, is brought full circle. Hmm. Um, thank you for that, Matt. And we, I do want to just stay on this path for just one more question, uh, because we have one of our Jesus Collective partners uh, sent in a question that is right along these lines. Uh, that's Mr. Scott Lackey. So thank you, Scott, for sending in this question. And it's so beautiful. How does your understanding, Matt, of God's glory differentiate from the Reformed, meaning God flexing his metaphysical biceps view of God's glory? Yeah, so I'm thinking some Reformed conversations, um, and this would be part of the Westminster Catechism too, like the, the, the basic human purpose is to glorify God. And they would see that as on the one hand happening through sal the salvation of the elect, uh, but also through the God passing over those who experience damnation. Um, and that's that both equally glorify God, that those are both things that bring God ultimate glory. I think that's a misunderstanding of the glory cycle and a misunderstanding of how yeah. Scripture um, presents glory in a number of ways, but that like the, the upshot of it would be like, just to cut to the chase, uh, the upshot would be that God's glory is most restored when humans are most fully restored. Um, and so that it's not a zero sum game, right? That humans have to be restored in glory. And that's what brings God glory. Um, that God is not especially glorified through like um, humans experiencing damnation or something along right. those lines. I right. wouldn't see that as, as something that scripture emphasizes as part of the glory cycle. Mm-hmm.
So as we head towards the finish line here, um, to keep this really practical, how can we better share like a King Jesus gospel and the why of the gospel to the nuns and the duns? By the way, I loved your story about you're in a Catholic context and you started talking about the gospel to the nuns. And like all these people are like, you know, what about the nuns? Right? (laughs) I thought that was hilarious. That was great. No, 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 no. Not that kind of nuns. No, not those nuns. Not those kind of nuns. No, (laughs) not those kind of nuns. Those kind of nuns need the gospel too. We all do. But um, Why is he always bagging on the nuns? Yeah. Yeah, so... In, in terms of practical advice, I think that um, I speak in in um, that chapter and the chapter that follows about a certain pattern, I think, that is helpful for the church and that we often begin in the wrong direction and that we need to reverse our patterning. So uh, practically speaking, we tend to be, we tend to lead out with um, Jesus is your savior and he's died for your sins. And so in light of his death for sins, like accept that truth, believe in the atonement, believe that Jesus's death for your sins is effective, truly trust that in your heart. And then once you've done that, like then, um, hey, now I got a, a secret surprise for you. Did you know Jesus is your Lord also? Yeah. Right. Um, and that he's, uh, you've now accepted him as Lord of your life too. And that in light of that, you should maybe find a church. And if you love Jesus, then you should really express your love for him by trying to be a good person. Uh, that's often how the gospel is framed without people really thinking much about um, the, 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 the problems with the patterning there. A, a better way of approaching would be to say instead, don't you know that Jesus is your king, right? And that he has become the king, um, regardless of whether or not you acknowledge it, actually. Mm. Um, that Jesus is the king of the universe. That's the good news. Um, and the, the good news for you is you have a, a, an opportunity to give loyalty to him, to, to, to declare your fealty. Uh, and this is what we call faith in the Bible then, or one way of speaking about faith, um, as faith is a big word. But one way of speaking about it would be to speak about loyalty. Uh, and then it says you respond with loyalty to this King Jesus that you then uh, enter into a forgiven and set free way of life. And so the importance of, of, of getting that ordering right is that we then are, are positioning people to be disciples from the beginning, right? That we're helping people to see like it's actually by you giving your loyalty to King Jesus now and as an ongoing process, that's actually how you're being saved because you have to keep attending to Jesus. You have to keep watching him. You have to keep staying under his authority. And when you fall short, you have to ask for forgiveness again. And you you keep on like, like your process of salvation is actually through a process of discipleship as you come under the banner of this king. Um, reversing that, I think, has huge practical payoff for the church. Yeah. Um, I could say much, much more about the nuns and duns. I, um, I could say more about evangelism too, if you wish, but let me um, give you the chance to ask a follow-up question as you wish. Yeah. Um, I, I would just say like the only follow-up question at this point is like, what is your hope that this book will accomplish? What are you hoping that like pastors and church leaders will, will take from this book? Well, I, I hope ab- above all else, they take away a reframing. You know, that's really the heart of this project would be to think about the deeper questions about why God gave the gospel in the first place and not just to assume, well, oh, because we know the answer to that question. Like explore what scripture says about it and explore it from multiple angles. That's what I attempt to do in the book is to show that it's a multifaceted answer that scripture gives. Mm-hmm. And that actually scripture's clearest articulation is something we we hardly ever even think about in the church or at least until recently 
recently haven't begun to think about. And actually, the, if you ask, like, what is the purpose of the gospel in the Bible? Like, the clearest answer is in Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26. And that's actually for the obedience of faith among all the nations. This is loyal obedience or allegiant obedience to King Jesus in every nation. That's the purpose of the gospel. It's not to get us to heaven. It's not uh, like that. Like, that's a, that's a really uh, interesting answer, right, that Paul gives about, uh, about the explicit purpose of the gospel. So my my greatest hope would be that it's something that you know gets out in the, into the church in in, the, in terms of, of pastors choosing to preach sermons, you know, maybe taking a chapter at a time and working through it. Uh, uh, even maybe better, like using it as the basis for church wide studies. I tried to write it in an accessible way mm-hmm. that it could realistically be used for church wide studies. I tried to also not you know make sure it's not controversial. Like really, I don't name names in the book. I don't say that the reform people are getting it wrong or anything like that. I have my views, but nevertheless, like I, I don't name names to try to keep it as useful as possible for church-wide studies or small group studies. Um, so yeah, getting people uh, into this material so that they have the correct framework for the gospel in place that will drive mission, mm-hmm. right? Um, that they that they really get why the gospel matters. Yeah, I think that's so helpful, Matt. And I, I wanted to thank you for helping us tell a better story. And I think so much of our gospeling has told, you know, condensed stories or slightly refracted malformed stories. And I, I thank you for that refreshing, like kind of let's let's look again. And I, I think you do this really well is you help us see scriptures that perhaps we've read a thousand times and you'd be like, pay attention to this word. He's saying more than what you think he's saying or or that. So I think that's great. That's such a gift. So my co-host, Shauna, had to run uh, to her next meeting. But I just want to say thank you so much for spending some time with Jesus Collective folks. And we just really appreciate your generosity of just hanging out with us. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah. On Twitter, uh, I'm on Twitter a little bit, not a lot, uh, at Matthew W. Bates. Um, connect with me on Facebook. I do better there. Uh, so I, I like the conversations on Facebook better than Twitter. Uh, I, I have a webpage too, www.matthewwbates.com, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's what it is. Well, there you go. Check yep. them out, folks. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Have a great uh Great rest of your day, Matt. And to our listening audience, thanks for pulling up a chair and listening to Why the Gospel. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to check out JesusCollective.com, where you can find more resources and upcoming events, learn about getting involved through partnership, and donate so we can keep offering content like this and engage more people and churches around the world. We'd also love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to us with your ideas and feedback. You can drop us a message on social media or email us at connect at jesuscollective.com. Until next time.